Good morning. If you have a copy of God's Word, you can turn to Acts chapter 2. Uh, one of my favorite internet trends of all time is when siblings come together in adulthood to recreate an awkward family photo from childhood. And just in case you're not familiar with this phenomenon, I, I brought a few examples this morning. Uh, let's look at the first one. As you can see, uh, they didn't quite recapture the magic of their tacky sweaters from yesteryear, uh, but they did nail all four facial expressions, so we give credit for that. We also should give high marks to the baby brother who understood the assignment. He, he really went for it. Uh, he channeled his inner baby, and he did a great job. So I give them a, a 6 out of 10. All right, next slide. So these three brothers had a little bit greater attention to detail. Okay, the backdrop is the same. The poses and expressions are the same. The outfits are, are close to the same. This is a 9 out of 10. And then I want to show you my, my favorite recreation I found uh, this week. This one is amazing. It, it gets the gold medal. It gets a 10 out of 10. And, you know, if you're splitting hairs, you might say, Pastor, this isn't an exact recreation. The, the chair, the carpet, the backdrop are all different. And you would be right, but I would still assign the best possible score to these two brothers because I appreciate I appreciate the younger brother's commitment to the bit. And you may not be able to see this on screen, but the younger brother has the same bowl cut in both photos. And assuming that he hasn't had that bowl cut his entire life, this means he went to his barber and said, here's a picture of me from 1993. Can you give me the same cut today? And I respect it. Now, obviously, we, we recognize while a recreation like this can be a fun gift for mom and dad, try as you may, you cannot produce a perfect copy of a picture from the past. You can revisit it, but you can't replicate it. You can wear similar outfits, you can strike similar poses in similar places, but you cannot create a perfect duplicate of a snapshot from the past. And so as we return to Acts chapter 2, we should keep this idea in mind, because in verses 42 through 47, Luke gives us a snapshot of life in the early church. And it's meant to be a model for us. It's meant to serve as a, a standard for us. It's meant to shape, mold, equip, train, and correct us, but it's not meant to discourage us. You know, sometimes when you look at old photos, you can feel a yearning in your soul for a return to the good old days. You're flipping through pictures and you say, man, I was so much skinnier back then, or, or that was a great trip. Honey, do you, don't you miss when we had disposable income? Or what happened to all my hair? I wish my grandbabies were still babies. And so we must realize that the, the end of chapter 2, Luke shows us a vintage photograph of a healthy church, not a perfect church. That this church was not a, a vision of Christian utopia. In the next chapter, persecution starts from the Jewish authorities. In chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira lie to the Holy Spirit. In chapter 7, Stephen is murdered by an angry mob. In chapter 8, Simon the Magician tries to purchase the power of God. In chapter 15, they have a church business meeting, or more accurately, an organized screaming match 
to settle the issue of circumcision. And we could spend another five minutes listing all the ways that Paul and his mission partners struggled to carry the gospel to the ends of the earth. So this isn't Luke saying, here's a perfect church, now shape up and reach their level of perfection. This is Luke providing a general description of the early church, highlighting a group of a growing group of believers who were centered on Christ, who were shaped by the Spirit, and who were connected to one another. And his snapshot from the past should motivate us in the present. So let's read verses 42 through 47 together. Starting in verse 42, Luke writes, and they, were, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. As many of you know, our, our second core value is that we're community-driven because we believe life is better in community. Scripture makes this case from the very beginning. In Genesis 1, after God created the heavens and the earth and everything in it, he called all of it good. And when he created Adam, when he finished the pinnacle of his creation, he called him very good, but he quickly realized Adam was without a partner, and he said that was not good. Because God didn't design us to live in isolation. He says it's not good for man to be alone. And listen, I, I understand this uh, more than most. I'm, I'm a staff of one, which means that I oversee really short staff meetings, and I'm often alone. I'm not completely on an island. This past Thursday was my, my the third anniversary of my first Sunday at Charity, so this week I've spent a little bit of time looking back, and I can honestly say I'm overwhelmed by how much this body of believers has welcomed, served, and loved my family over the last three years. I'm truly blessed to be your pastor. But still, I spend the majority of my work week alone. So when I'm crushed under the weight of my pastoral responsibility, when I'm worried about keeping all my plates spinning, when I'm ridiculed, riddled with doubt about my leadership ability, when I'm overwhelmed with fear about my future, when I'm full of anxiety and I don't even know why, I can't poke my head into the associate pastor's office because he doesn't exist. Of course, I have other options. If I need a bit of encouragement, I can call my wife, my parents, another pastor, one of our deacons, or a friend, but the point remains, life is hard, and it's even harder when you go through it alone. Life is better with others. And so in these verses, we're going to examine Luke's snapshot of the first century church and look at four marks of healthy church community. Again, the goal is not reaching perfection, the goal is becoming healthier. And so the first thing we see of this healthy church community is that they were growing in knowledge together. They were growing in knowledge 
together. Verse 42 says they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. Last week as we worked through Peter's sermon at Pentecost, we received a, a quick glance at the apostles' brand of teaching. And it's truly striking how much his presentation of the gospel differs from most of the preaching in our day. Over the last few decades, if churches have become more seeker-sensitive with their services and strategies, preachers have become more seeker-sensitive with their sermons. And as a result, preaching has become less Christ-crucified and more behavior-modified. It's a lot of, hey, do you want to find peace? Do you want to be happy? Do you want to be less anxious about the future? Do you want to be a better husband? Do you want to be a better wife? Do you want to be a better parent? Then follow these five steps. Make these four changes. Listen to the rest of this sermon, and when I'm finished, run to the nearest bookstore and buy my new book on this exact topic. Now, to be clear, that's not all bad. Christ said that he came that we may have abundant life, so... He wants all those things and more for you, but the point is the gospel is Christ-centered, not you-centered. Notice when Peter stood up at Pentecost, he didn't address the felt needs of the crowd. He said, men of Israel, this is who Jesus is, this is what Jesus did, and this is why it should matter to you. You know, you could outline his sermon like this, Christ died, historical fact, for your sins, theological implication, therefore, you must repent and believe moral application. You know, this is our foundation. This is our starting point. This is our connective tissue. As D.A. Carson reminds us, the church is made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything else of that sort. Christians come together because they've all been saved by Jesus Christ. They are a band of natural enemies who love one another for his sake. The gospel brings us together, and when we come together, we devote ourselves to walking in deeper understanding of the same truths from the same gospel. It's like the Apostle Paul told the church in Corinth, When I came to you, brothers, I didn't come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now, whatever you are most devoted to, will shape and inform you. It'll influence how you spend your time and your money. It'll be the lens through which you see the entire world. And for the early church, their devotion was to the Word of God. They were completely committed to the Old Testament scriptures and the teaching of the apostles, and they would have been overjoyed to live in our time and have the fullness of scripture at their fingertips. You know, church, we have the, the word of, of God. We have the breath of God, as Paul puts in 2 Timothy, in our hands, in our laps. Do we have the same devotion to it? Certainly the statistics 
would say no. When we consider the, the state of, of the universal church, we see a widespread crisis of biblical illiteracy where Christians just don't know their Bibles. Many professing Christians in America believe in God's Word like they believe in the U.S. Constitution. They love it. They fight for it. They talk about it. They vote for candidates who promise to protect it. But they probably don't have as firm of a grip on it as they should. In our culture, if we aren't careful, we can easily lean into a brand of Christianity which is based on our gut and not God's Word. It's really easy to do. Let me give you an example. Let's say a teenage girl is driving to school and she's wrestling with nerves about her biology test. She's feeling a little bit anxious, so to clear her mind, she turns on Caleb. And at that exact moment, the DJ says, listen, God will never give you more than you can handle. God will never give you more than you can handle. So be encouraged on this Tuesday morning. And she hears that, and she breathes a sigh of relief. And she goes about her day thinking that the Spirit of God spoke truth into her situation, and she feels better. But here's the problem. That ain't truth. God's Word doesn't say that. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, God will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but God can and will give you much more than you can handle. Because often suffering is the way that God draws us back to Him. He leaves us like Job who, who said, Naked I entered this world, and, and naked I'll leave it. The good Lord, good Lord gives, and the good Lord takes away. So, you know, Proverbs 16, 25 says, There's a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way of death. In other words, your gut is often wrong. In many situations, when you... When you weigh everything out and you go, that seems right, it's not right. There are ways that seem right to man, but they lead to death. So therefore, we must be a church who leans into God's Word. We must be a church who allows it to bear weight on our lives. We must be a church who lets it mold us into the image of Christ. It is God's self-disclosure of Himself to us, and it cannot be neglected. Let's move to the next point. Second, they were building relationships together. Verse 42 says they were devoted to the fellowship. Then in verse 44, Luke adds, And all who believed had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and redistributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending temple together, and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. You know, we could spend a whole sermon unpacking the fellowship in the early church. We don't have time, so I quickly want to look at six words which describe their relationships. One, 
They were consistent. They were always together. They were meeting in large groups and small groups. They were gathering in the temple by the thousands and gathering in homes by the few. The word together is an overarching theme in these verses. They were together praising God. They were together breaking bread. They were together in the temple. They were together in their homes. They were always together. Second word is diverse. You may remember from last week when when Peter and the rest of the apostles spilled out into the street during Pentecost, they began sharing the gospel with with Jewish men from every nation under heaven. And at the end of Peter's sermon, 3,000 submitted their lives to Christ, and many of them were not from Jerusalem. They were only in town because they were making their yearly pilgrimage for the celebration. But after they heard the good news, they stayed. They didn't return to their homes. They didn't return to their jobs. They didn't return to their friends. They left everything behind so they could become active members of the first church. And as a result, the early church became this beautiful foretaste of heaven where believers of various cultures, races, socioeconomic statuses, and educational backgrounds were worshiping together. The third word is authentic. Because the early church was spending every day together. They saw the good, bad, and ugly of each other. They couldn't play our classic American game of, of fake it until you make it. As I've mentioned before, we can get really good at putting on our, our church face. This is where you come on Sunday morning and you put on an Oscar-worthy performance to, to show everyone that life is going perfectly. You may be falling apart on the inside, but you will portray an image of being fully together on the outside. If you're asked, how are you, doesn't matter if your dog died, doesn't matter if you got a horrible report from the doctor, doesn't matter if your car got sideswiped at Target on Saturday afternoon, you respond, I'm so good, thanks for asking. You know, I've heard it said that it's very easy to find friendly people at church, but it's much harder to find friends at church. And we could unpack a, a few theories for why someone might feel that way, but the truth is, in many cases, not all cases, but in many cases, when a person doesn't feel connected to their church, it's not because their church can't cultivate connection. It's because their pride won't allow connection. You see, pride loves keeping others at an arm's length. Pride refuses to let anyone get too close. Pride says, you can't join that small group. You can't go on that retreat. You can't have that family over for dinner. If you do, they'll, they're going to see who you really are. They're going to see that you have shortcomings. They're going to see that you have problems. They're going to see that you have sin, and they're never going to look at you the same way. 
And so let me say that if you struggle with the idea of opening up to making deeper connections with other believers, let me encourage you with this. We already know your life is a mess. We know you are not the prim and proper, polished, perfect, social media version of yourself. We know you have stuff because we all have stuff. You know, C.S. Lewis once wrote something along the lines that the, the typical expression of opening a friendship is saying to someone, what, you too, I thought I was the only one. I, was, I thought I was the only one who felt that way. I thought I was the only one who had struggled with that. See, this church is full of imperfect people following a perfect Savior, and we can't afford to put on a front with one another. We must be open with one another. Listen, you shouldn't be sharing your issues with everyone, okay? That's not a good idea, but you should be sharing them with someone. And by the way, if I could insert a quick plug into the sermon, DNA groups are a great place to find your circle, and they'll be back in December. Okay, fourth word, accountable. When you're more genuine with others, you begin sharing about the places where you're falling short, and your support system can point you back to Jesus. When you hit a wall, when you stumble, when you reach a point where you feel like you're about to crawl out of your skin, you need a small network of other believers who you can call on. You bring your questions. You unload your doubts. You express your fears. You illuminate your insecurities, and they pose thoughtful questions back to you. They encourage you. They counsel you. They speak truth to you, and they pray over you. When you waver, you need a few who can help you steady the ship. Fifth word is encouraging. Unfortunately, encouragement can sometimes be a lacking characteristic for the church, but encouragement should be a cornerstone of Christian community, especially in difficult circumstances. I've used this illustration before, but in the 1960s, Martin Seligman, may have said that right, probably not, uh, conducted research on learned helplessness, and his team the way they research this is they, they put a dog in a cage designed to receive electric shocks. And when the cage, when they hit the cage with a charge of electricity, the dog jumped and, and yelped as anticipated. Then they would wait a few minutes, they'd shock the cage again, same results. By the way, PETA was established in the 80s if you're wondering how this experiment was even possible. But after several shocks, the dog started responding less and less. The dog became hardened to the impact of the shock. When researchers even opened the door of the cage and shocked the dog, he still stayed inside. He grew numb to the pain. He learned to embrace the pain. And even though the door was open and he was free, he stayed inside the pen. But then they added another dog to the equation. When they conducted the same experiment, the second dog sprinted for the open door. 
And in that moment, the first dog realized there was a better way, and he followed the second dog to freedom that was already his. All right, and in a similar way, sin hardens and deceives us. Causes us to beat ourselves down with guilt and shame and stay in a cage when Christ has already set us free. This is why Hebrews 13.3 says, Encourage each other daily while it's still called today so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. And then the final word, number six, is, is sacrificial. The early church sacrificed for one another. Verses 44 and 45 say, they had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings, distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. I must clarify, this was not communism. This was not pooling and redistributing all their resources equally. The early church simply held their possessions lightly. They were always prepared to leverage their resources to support their church family when a need arose. And so again, we're, we're not working with an exhaustive list, but through the example of the early church, we see several important characteristics of healthy Christian community. We should strive for making consistency, diversity, authenticity, accountability, encouragement, sacrifice, defining marks of our church. All right, let's move to the third point. Third, they were seeking God's presence together. They were devoted to the breaking of bread. Now, there's some debate here about the meaning of the breaking of bread in Acts 2. Uh, Luke could be referring either to table fellowship or to the Lord's Supper, but in reality, it doesn't really matter because they were certainly doing plenty of both. As they were living their lives together in community, they, they shared meals daily and they shared the Lord's Supper frequently. And we can assume Lord was present in both their informal and formal settings. Paul would later explain that they came to these gatherings ready to be used by the Spirit of God. They were expecting to see God show up. Luke says back in verse 42 that all came upon every soul. That they were overcome with wonder. They were full of, of reverence. They were seeking the presence of the Lord and they left motivated to bring others back into it. They were all thinking, what will God do next? Who will he heal? Who will he add to our family? What miracle will he oversee? I don't know what will happen during our next worship service, but I do know I won't miss it. And so let me ask you, when you woke up this morning and you got ready to come here, what were you expecting? Did you anticipate hearing a word from the Lord, or were you checking a box? Did you pour your heart out in song, or were you making a grocery list in your head as Matt led us? Were you excited about gathering around the scriptures with your Sunday school class, or were you looking forward to just catching up with your friends? Or did you sleep in and miss it? You know, again, we cannot fully recapture the magic of the early church, but when we gather, we can taste a little bit of it. Our worship must strike a balance between carnival and crematory. 
Now, on one hand, we can't become so infatuated with chasing the awe and wonder described in Acts 2 that we have Matt leading us with smoke machines and skinny jeans. But on the other hand, we can't become so discouraged by their standard that we slip into a pattern where our worship services can't be distinguished from funeral services. Looking at the early church can help us find the right formula. As Alistair Begg puts it, they were formal in the temple and informal in the home. They were structured in the temple and unstructured in the home. And in both places, they had reverence with an understanding of the majesty and greatness of God. And they had joy. They had joy that he would invade their time and space. They were seeking God's presence together. And then our final point, finally, they were praying together. They were devoted to prayer. The early church prayed with power and expectation. We, we talked about this last week. Peter preached a sermon and 3,000 were saved. And while we can marvel at, at the description of the Spirit's work and we can be inspired by Peter's boldness to preach with such conviction, we cannot gloss over the role that prayer played in this wave of conversions. Before Pentecost, the disciples spent 10 days in the upper room praying to God and waiting for the gift of the Spirit. They prayed for days, Peter preached for minutes, and many came to salvation. And by comparison, we pray for minutes, preach for days, and we can't understand why God isn't moving in our midst. In Acts 12, Peter was arrested by King Herod's men. And on the heels of the Apostle James' death at the hands of the same administration, Peter's days appeared to be numbered. His execution seemed inevitable. But the early church refused to mourn. They refused to give up hope. Instead, they prayed. Verse 5 says they prayed earnestly to God. They prayed with assurance and anticipation. They prayed with confidence their God would move, and he did. God sent an angel and freed Peter from the hands of Herod. Church, how often do we pray with the same conviction? A few weeks ago, I heard another pastor say, prayerlessness is unbelief. And since then, because I didn't like hearing it, I've been working on an opposing argument, but I can't come up with it because he's right. Now let me let me say, for most Christians, consistent prayer is a constant struggle. Now you'll have times where you have every intention of praying, but then you get busy, you get distracted, or you you flat out. Forget, it happens to all of us. But regular prayerlessness, constant prayerlessness, is unbelief. When you don't carry any of your burdens, when you don't carry any of your concerns to the throne of grace, then you are essentially saying, Either God is not loving enough to care about my situation, 
or God is not powerful enough to change my situation. Or in your self-sufficiency and pride, you're saying, I don't need God's help with my situation. I've got this. Now, you can easily fall into a trap of looking at the events in Acts 2 and Acts 12 and then reading these accounts and saying, that's really cool. They prayed and God moved in a mighty way. Praise God for that. But we just don't see these kinds of things in our day. But I can assure you, our God is still in the business of answering prayers. Let me tell you another story of a prayer-fueled gospel movement on American soil. This is a well-known story, which some of you have certainly heard. But in 1857, Jeremiah Lamphere became a missionary to the inner city of Manhattan. Great name for a missionary, by the way. And Jeremiah was discouraged by the rise of materialism in New York City and the subsequent decline in church attendance. Could you imagine how Jeremiah would feel in 2022? So on September 23, 1857, Jeremiah opened the doors of his church for a weekly community prayer meeting. On the first week, six men came. The next week, 15. The following week, 35. And after the third week, they started to meet daily. Within six months, around 10,000 businessmen were, pray, were attending these daily prayer meetings. Soon, pastors in Cleveland, St. Louis, Pittsburgh, and Washington, D.C. set up similar prayer meetings and saw similar results and revival began to break out across America. It's estimated that in 1858 and 1859 alone, around one million people trusted Jesus Christ for salvation. And the spark, the spark of that movement was six men coming together to pray for the loss in their community. Before we we finish, I want to draw your attention to the last verse of Acts 2. You know, we can dig into these characteristics and we can miss the last thing said here. It says, And the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. Church, this is so important. We don't add. God adds. We devote ourselves to biblical teaching in large groups and small groups. We devote ourselves to fellowship inside and outside of this building. We devote ourselves to seeking God's presence every week. We devote ourselves to praying focused prayers for our church family and for the lost, but God adds. We spread the seeds, we water the plants, but he brings the growth. And if we're faithful to do what he's called us to do, hope will be restored, lives will be changed, and Christ will be glorified. Let's pray. Father, we we thank you for this, this vintage photograph that Luke gives us of the early church. 
it shows us many of the the marks of a healthy church gives us a standard gives us a model gives us something to shoot for and so lord this this morning individually and, and collectively as your word rests in our hearts and minds i ask that you would show us the places that we fall short of acts 2 the places where we need work the places where we could be healthier places where we could be more efficient places where we could be better lord we know until you return or call us home that we will not be perfect but we can strive day by day to be healthier and so father help us in that pursuit we thank you for the cross and we thank you that Christ's atoning sacrifice on that cross covers every way that we fall short. Father, we love you. We ask these things in Christ's name.